Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Cheryl Bergstaller, who is out of the University of Washington and is a leader in a lot of the thinking around universal design. I'm going to let her talk about herself. But before we do any of that, Cheryl, welcome to Trending in Education. No, oh, thanks for inviting me. This is great fun. Yeah. 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 And, then, and, and then the way we uh, like to get to know people at the top is we ask our guests for their origin stories. What got you to this point in your career? And what are we going to be talking about today? I first started my career as a middle school teacher of mathematics. And uh, then I eventually taught in the Department of Defense in South Korea, teaching military to help them finish their high school uh, diplomas and move on to college in kind of a remote area on a military installation. I wasn't in the military. I worked for the Department of Defense. So then I came back and I worked at community colleges, ended up at a uh, four-year institution, St. Martin's uh, Institution in St. Martin's College, actually in Washington State, the smallest post-secondary school in the state of Washington, a mm. private school. And then from there, moved to the University of Washington. Through that journey, I got really interested in microcomputers, they were called, now desktop computers, of course. So I was one of the first people on my block, actually the very first to have a, an Apple II computer nice. with an RFB modulator so I could connect it to my TV set and do basic programming because there wasn't much software for it. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up teaching some courses for teachers on how to use microcomputers or desktop computers in their classroom and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I got engaged in, for personal reasons, my personal experiences around disability, but also some people that just came into my sphere who had uh, physical disabilities and couldn't use the keyboard because they couldn't fully use their hands. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, started fooling around with my Apple II and realized that there were three keys that you needed to suppress with another key. Mm -hmm. So if you only hit one key at a time, like a mouse stick in your mouth, the first little boy I worked with, he couldn't do certain commands. He couldn't do the shift and then a repeat key or the shift, um, the cap key and so forth. And I called Apple and said, hey, I wanted to report this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just were uninterested. They, they didn't do that kind of stuff. And so at least the person I talked to. And so I just started trying to network with people and found a handful of people around the country that were working in a field that became assistive technology. So this was, what time period are we? In the 70s. Yeah, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I found a graduate student um, at another university who had made a little switch box that actually connected to the keyboard and it had three switches on it, you could lock those three keys. Mm. And it was like it opened a whole new world. People would come to um, our computer lab and want to have demonstrations of this. Mm. I had a graduate student build some of these and he sold them to people. It was a simple little box, but made me wonder, why do you have to have this extra hardware for some right. of a simple thing? Mm -hmm. And of course, now that capability is handled with software. Yeah. But anyway, I came to the University of Washington to start a new group called the Microcomputer Support Group and have been working at the university in several different um, areas all along. But yeah. But since, uh, since I came to the university, I made accessibility part of my job description to make sure that faculty, students, and staff at the university have access to technology. And in the early days, it was mainly about assistive technology. But now we spend more of our time working on the accessible design or universal design of mainstream technology. So those using assistive technology can actually use the tools that all of us like to use. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot in there and we're going to, we're going to dig in and, and you provided some really wonderful resources to me, which we're going to share out with all of our listeners to understand some of the frameworks around three big areas. They're all interrelated, but there's universal design, there's universal design for learning or UDL, and then there's WCAG, which is web content accessibility guidelines. 
And as someone who's worked in e-learning my whole career, I was pretty familiar with this stuff, but this is the first time someone gave me a nice framework that I could connect the dots with. And I'd love to spend some time uh, with you. And there's a book which you've even authored. What's the name of the book that we're talking about? The book is called Creating Inclusive Learning Opportunities in Higher Education, a Universal Design Toolkit. And it just came out in December. And I'm the author of that book. And so it goes through this framework we're talking about today. Yeah. And your whole approach is very accessible to be a little bit on the nose there, but who's the book for? And can you start outlining some of the ways in which this whole framework makes sense? Yeah. The book is for people uh, primarily working in higher education, although 90% of it would apply to any educational level or any environment for that matter. But I focus on higher education. Uh, So disability services offices, of course, where they provide accommodations for students with disabilities. But the idea of this book, how can we do some things proactively so fewer accommodations would actually be required? And students with disabilities can just enter an environment and uh, it's just born accessible. They're just able to use it rather than having to ask for special uh, considerations so that they can use the technology. So that's what that's all about. And it's also for faculty that want to learn how to make their courses accessible to students with disabilities and other underrepresented groups as well, like English language learners and so forth. And it's for administrators that are trying to set an agenda for their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on their campuses, which is a real popular thing now. A lot of people think of it in terms of Black Lives Matter, and that's very important. But I think of it more broadly in that we need to be thinking about all diversity issues and equity issues and inclusion issues for all groups, particularly marginalized groups and students with disabilities are often left out of that agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what struck me because we've talked about the, these massive awakenings around social justice and equity and inclusion, which to your point, the amazing work's been done there. A lot of mindset shifting has happened there in a good way. But I think people frequently don't go all the way with that thinking to then think about every case, which would include people who may not have the same level of physical capability to engage with the technology. And then similarly, It makes me think about the digital divide, which has been a big conversation in light of the pandemic, where people may not have access to Wi-Fi or feel comfortable with technology. But once something moves to a digital format, it becomes a different set of challenges for learners who need to access either the assistive technology or any of this. So any perspective on how Universal Design, UDL, and we'll get into some of the specifics in a bit, but how UDL, Universal Design relate to both the the concept of the digital divide and then also some of these themes around uh, diversity and inclusion. Yeah, when I think about the digital divide, we're thinking about the haves and have nots as far as technology. And that includes access to the internet, of course, these days, and the tools that you need to make use of it. Well, I call it actually a second digital divide. And that's people that have access to the internet and these tools like websites and so forth, access in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. but they can't use them because they're not designed to be accessible to them. And some of those people have disabilities and some are using assistive technology. Uh, They may have a physical disability, a sensory impairment, a a cognitive issue, students on the autism spectrum that may have difficulties with a social interaction. So Mm -hmm. it's students with disabilities, but other people in the community that have disabilities as well. Mm -hmm. And so they are left out double. (laughs) They miss both digital divides. Yeah, a lot of this thinking I think helps open up our definition of accessible. The other thing that I thought was really interesting uh, was the the three pillars of universal design, which are accessibility, usability, and inclusion. 
-hmm. I thought that was, again, thank you for the work you're doing to help create some frameworks for those of us who like frameworks. Yes. made this stuff easier for me to wrap my head around. Can you talk about how those three things uh, relate to each other? Yeah. The basic definition of universal design was set many years ago by the Center on Universal Design at North Carolina State University. And it's the design of products and environments to be usable by all people to the greatest extent possible without the need for adaptation or specialized design. And some people, when they hear about that fact, they say, well, I don't mind helping people with disabilities. And it's not about that. Mm -hmm. It's a, do you want to get into an environment where every time you have to ask for something special? And so we want to make things as accessible as we can. We can't be perfect about it, but we can at least shoot for that. Yeah. And so universal design then for any product or environment has three characteristics as I see it. And one is it has to be technically accessible. A person with a disability has to be able to use it where accessibility is about access for people with disabilities. Often that's how I'm using the term here, but it has to be usable as well. I have a person on my staff or my technical staff who is blind. And he was telling me not long ago about a piece of software that he was evaluating for accessibility that was technically accessible. Why? Because the company made the product without thinking about accessibility. And then they went and looked at all the inaccessible features and they created shortcut commands. Yeah. There were like a hundred shortcuts that my staff member would have to use. Mm -hmm in order to get to all the features that, that other people would be pulling down menus for. Uh, so how's he gonna do that? So we're talking about a person who's blind. So what is he gonna print this out in braille? And so he could use it. Well, that's a technically accessible product, but it has to be usable as well. You have to be able to get to do things that you wanna do with that product. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is inclusion. Universal design is not about, okay, we'll create a product for blind people. Right. <laughs> or right. whatever, a disability. It's about how can we include them? And that isn't one size fits all. It means there's flexibility yeah. and ideally that the user actually can control some of that flexibility. We see it on our smartphones. I can choose the size, the characters on the screen. I can change the difference between the background and the foreground. My, my phone talks to me. Actually, it talks to me a little too much. I can't get it to shut up sometimes, but it will talk to me. Yeah. Um, and that's what that's. That's inclusive design that we're yeah. not creating a new phone for someone who has a disability. We're saying, how can we build in these accessibility features? And then after you've pretty much built in what's reasonable, then you make sure it's compatible with existing technology. Mm -hmm. And so that computer or whatever can be interfaced with a braille embosser. So a person who is blind can independently create hard copy of the materials they're accessing, but we're not going to have to build in all that capability for the rest of us. Yeah. It's just to be compatible. Yeah, and I saw it as very, very empowering as well for the learner. There's a notion of a, a self-determination that sits on the other side of the equation where the designer is thinking about universal design, and then the learner is being encouraged to really understand this technology for herself, not necessarily need the guide unless it needs to be there. And I think that spirit is inspirational, and then it also avoids almost like a separate but equal dynamic that you can fall into if accessibility becomes an afterthought or becomes something you do to stay out of trouble and to check a box, as opposed to build it into the upstream design of the product. And then a lot of the examples that I've heard, the one we always come back to is ramps, but they're frequently beneficial, not just to the audience that they were specifically designed with that in mind, are there examples of that you can think of as well, just around ways in which designing this way is not just the right thing to be inclusive, but it also opens up new opportunities for innovation or product development? Yeah. 
as far as technology, captions is a one that comes to mind is captions are useful for people who are deaf, as long as they're accurate, but people mm-hmm. are deaf and rely on them to access the content. Another group is English language learners or people from different cultures that benefit from seeing the spelling of words. Mm -hmm. Another group is people that just want to see the spelling of words. For instance, if you're taking a chemistry class and your instructor is lecturing, my guess is there are going to be some words in there that you need to see spelled. And so there are a lot of people that benefit. We have a large collection of videos on our, one of our websites, and you can search through all the captions and you can find just like we do with typical Google search, Mm -hmm. every place and every video and you can link right to it where we talk about blindness, for instance. If you're Mm -hmm. just interested in that, in all of our videos, you can spend the afternoon just looking at those sections of our videos. Yeah. So there are just a lot of people that benefit from captions. As far as uh, documents that you're using, let's say in an online class, PDF documents are commonly used by faculty and designers. They are difficult to make accessible, but they can be. And if you want to invest some time, I'd say at least a half day workshop, maybe more in creating accessible PDFs, then more power to you. That's great. But if not, just don't use them. And one of the biggest problems about PDFs and some other documents, but particularly PDFs, is if they don't have access to the text, they just are basically scanned in images. Mm -hmm. Now there are PDFs, again, that you can make accessible, but if it's a scanned in image, Of course, someone who's blind, their screen reader doesn't read images, it reads text. And so it's just going to say to the user image, they don't know if that's the primary content in the class at that point, or if it's a picture of a flower that's decorative, Right. unless the programmer or the the person who developed the product makes it. But it's not just people who are blind. It's people who have dyslexia and other reading related disabilities. Yeah. They use text to speech software, very similar to what people who are blind use, but for a different reason. They benefit from being able to hear the words and seeing them on the screen at the same time. Mm. It makes their reading uh, comprehension better, Mm -hmm. understandably for most of us. And they benefit from access to that text. A third group are people who are limited in the language skills for whatever the language the document's written in. They too benefit by using text-to-speech software so they can see the words and hear the words exactly at the same time. Yeah, And there are other people that benefit too, but those are three major groups that benefit yeah. from that. Yeah. And then the next thing I wanted to get into a little more was universal design for learning, which seems uh, more focused on providing those different ways of engaging with the content. So when you think about designing it, allowing some of that flexibility so that there's multiple ways to engage. And can you talk a little bit about uh, UDL as maybe the next, next piece of the puzzle? Yeah. I'm a, a big advocate of UDL. But I think too often people stop there. So UDL is about providing multiple ways to learn and to demonstrate what you've learned and to um, engage. And so, for instance, I do teach online courses. I have for many years. I actually taught the first online course at the University of Washington back in the 90s nice. uh, to see if we could really even do it as an educator. But in a nutshell, it, if we look at universal design for learning, it would say, oh, when you're teaching a concept, maybe use a video and a document so you could read the material and you could witness it on a video. And some people stop there and say, well, I've provided it in two different ways. And I believe you also need to provide those ways to be as inclusive as possible. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to provide that content using a document and using a video, the video should be captioned and the document should be accessible as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's not an either or situation. We would like ideally for all of our students to be able to use both ways of learning. Mm -hmm. And so that's where accessible design of those documents and videos uh, comes in. 
And there are a lot of standards for that, that you and I don't have to know the details of, but I have some fine people who work for me that do. Yeah. But it's the web content accessibility guidelines mm -hmm. uh, that's built on three principles, but it's all about making websites and videos and uh, hardware, software accessible to people with disabilities and for other people as well. That's why we need technical people to, to get into the details of that sort of thing, but not for these basics. And so then the other set of principles that we need to remember is way back when the first principles for universal design came about, they were for any product or environment, but specific examples were in two different areas, architecture, and that's where ramps and curb cuts and things like that came about. Mm -hmm. uh, standards for how wide should your door entrance be for wheelchair access and so forth. Yep. Uh, so those are the universal design principles. There are seven of them. But then they were applied to products, commercial products. How do you design a pancake turner that's easier for someone who's elderly or young or whatever that they can use? Mm -hmm. And so you can apply that. And even like the... More currently, the universal design of a microwave oven just means mm. that you design it in such a way that elderly can use it, person who's blind can use it, person who has limited sight. For instance, if you think of most microwaves, the, 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 the print on them is so fine and so yeah. small that if you have any sort of a visual impairment at all, you can't use them. Mm -hmm. And so that's the original principles. And as far as education, then, what they add to the UDL and the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines is the physical environment. It's not enough. Right now, it's enough to do things online, but normally without the pandemic, and I think we will be in a post-pandemic world pretty soon, you also want to make that computer lab that the students are using accessible to people with disabilities or that makerspace or whatever in order for a subject area to be fully accessible to a person with a disability. Mm -hmm. So that's why I combine the universal design principles and then the universal design for learning and the principles that support the IT accessibility. And in a nutshell, if you put all those together, there are 14 of them, and I don't recommend people read them. I actually, I recommend you read them, but not memorize them. Yes. Because to me, all you have to then remember is whenever you're teaching, provide multiple ways for people to learn and multiple ways for them to demonstrate their learning. So you mm -hmm. don't have all multiple choice tests, multiple ways to engage. And so like in my classes, in my syllabus, rather than say we can meet one-on-one -on -one using Zoom, I say we can meet one-on-one, -on -one, make a schedule appointment with me, and you tell me what technology you want to use to have our meeting. Mm -hmm. There are some students that will choose email. Yeah. And I don't question. It might be, and I know it is in some cases, as a student that has a, a speech impairment and feel like a little self-conscious or feel like it'll take too long to compose their thoughts mm -hmm. or someone who's an English language learner as well. And they too want to use their spell checkers and whatever. They don't want to have to give an excuse for using email. They just want to be able to say, I I'd prefer to use email or the bulletin board system within our system. So that's an example of universal design where you give the user control of that. And so then besides learning what learning, demonstrating what you learn and engagement, then the last one is all those methods you're using for those three things that you make sure they're accessible. Mm -hmm. So the physical facilities accessible for the online learning system, the, the methods that you're using are accessible and so forth. And so mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. Pretty simple. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the, the nice thing about it, I like to say life is an open book test most of the time. So if you have access to the right resources, you don't have to necessarily memorize them. You just need to bookmark the links and you're really a tremendous resource in terms of pointing people to where they can get this type of information. You also, and we'll share this out as part of the show notes, but you also were talking about the 20 tips that everybody needs to know. So can you talk a little bit about who 
you were thinking of when you came up with uh, 20 tips? As I said, I work with a very highly uh, technical staff. And uh, what I was finding in going to conferences and so forth, when they talked about accessibility of online learning, there was a lot of focus on uh, complicated technology things like, well, let's take a, like I say, a half day workshop on PDF accessibility. And it really turned off a lot of faculty members. My husband's a faculty member. He's not going to sit through a half day thing on PDF accessibility. Maybe yeah. somebody, his, his uh, technology staff in his department will. But anyway, I thought, well, people are making this too complicated. And it gave reasons for people to just not do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, I don't have enough term, time to devote to this or whatever. So I thought, well, wait a minute, there are a lot of really simple things that you can do to make your course accessible uh, to students with disabilities that you can't, you can't argue to me. I used to teach middle school. So yeah. you can't argue to me that you can't do that. Yeah. So I, I looked at what's in the literature. I looked at my own experiences and I talked to students with disabilities actually and found out what they uh, have concerns about. And one of the biggest things that <laughs> comes up over and over again for all types of disabilities is having a consistent, clear layout and organizational scheme in their mm-hmm. online class. Mm-hmm. And I review some online classes and I can see what they're talking about, particularly the pandemic. Faculty have an excuse now. They just had to throw these things up in a matter of days. And so what they did is they took all their PDFs and all their PowerPoints or whatever. They just literally threw them up there and they mm-hmm. didn't go back then and try to make them consistent in format from one page or one area to another. So that's where they could just start, just clean, clean up that. And it's particularly useful to people who are on the autism spectrum, who have attention deficit issues, learning disabilities, mm-hmm. and everybody else. It's the universal design. Yeah. It's sure that they use a text format and everything they do, which and structure the headings and the lists, and then hyperlinks, a lot of web pages and the content in classes. Uh, a faculty member or web designer wants to put them to be consistent. So they'll have click mm-hmm. here, underlines. Yeah. That looks really nice. For someone who's blind and using a screen reader, to access that website or content page, they have the capability of tabbing through and going from link to see what that page is linked to. And so if you design that way, it's going to say, click here. Mm -hmm. And so the person who's blind has to go way back to the beginning and read every single word on that page to figure out what the surrounding text is of that link. Now that doesn't take any extra time to say, do it website instead of click here. Right. So you click, so that underlying text should have some meaning. It doesn't have to be long, but just a little bit of, of meaning so someone can figure out the context. Yeah. Things like using large, bold fonts that are sans serif and uncluttered pages and plain backgrounds in PowerPoints particularly, but other documents is helpful. And yeah, using they're... text descriptions of images. Again, I mentioned that a student is blind is going to hear image and they don't know whether it's a little decorative flower or if it's the whole outline for the, the lesson. And so there are in learning management systems and on websites, you can add alternative text. Yes. And these screen readers are smart enough that they'll read that aloud uh, to the person uh, that needs to have the description. And the people often ask, what do I say? Let's pretend that, that there's a person in your presentation that's calling them by telephone. Mm-hmm. They just don't see your image on your PowerPoint. What would you say? You wouldn't describe what color everything is and so forth, but you'd, you'd at least say the words on what your, the point is of that image. And so those are some th- simple things. And of course, captioning videos and, mm-hmm. and even something as simple as avoiding a large number of technologies. It's really easy for us that are into technology. Oh, this is a really cool tool. How could I use it in my class? Mm-hmm. Rather than thinking, what am I trying to teach in my class? 
and I don't like to sound uh, negative about new technologies, but we're using a minimum of technologies that are required in the class. Mm -hmm. And some faculty say, oh, everybody, all the kids these days know how to use technology. What about people who are going back to college as mm -hmm. an, an older person, or they just don't for some reason. But, and of course, what about people with assistive technology that may not even be able to access that new technology? So just keeping it to a manageable set and also providing instructions for students who are just for the first time using Canvas or Blackboard or whatever you're using, that can benefit students with disabilities, but a lot of other people as well. Yeah. And that's what I keep coming back to. Like, it's not only the right thing to do for these underserved populations, it's also just good instructional design to have this level of understanding of your content. You were talking about the outlines, having a, a structure to and a coherence to your lesson that is then reflected through the formatting. Those are just good design principles as well. It's not just the right thing to do. It's also just good for you and for your content development. And also start by starting is the other thing that I'm hearing from you too. It does seem like people may almost externalize accessibility and think that's a job for an expert. I'm going to just do my thing. And it's not really my responsibility to think about this. If anything, I'm hearing you say that we should challenge ourselves to step up to this task because it's not too hard to understand and even small steps over time will take us a long way. Yeah, the online community has made this really apparent. Unfortunately, it's not apparent to a lot of people because they're not talking to people with disabilities and others who are dropping out of those classes. It's not like public school where you're required to go. And so they, students with disabilities, I, I hear from them that, well, they're just not going to be in school now because online learning isn't very accessible to them. And so faculty members are often surprised to hear about that. And I encourage them to think about what if they're doing the first two weeks. They don't have to do everything all at once. But the way we're uh, designed, at, our systems are designed at post-secondary schools are really better equipped to do accommodations than to promote universal design. And mm. faculty members are very happy with that because then they can say, we have an office to take care of that. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. If you make your course accessible the first week or two, at least those students have some time to get those other materials to the disability services office to have videos captioned and so forth. So at least do that. Mm. What faculty members tend to do is have the very first thing they want their students to look at, which is the syllabus in an inaccessible PDF. And so they, they might say, well, they wanted it to accessible. The office will do that. Mm -hmm. It's not very welcoming when you think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that student yeah. does not think that your course is going to be very accessible if they can't even access the syllabus. Yeah. And things like that are subtle too. The other aspect of diversity and inclusion that I'm hearing more about is belonging. And I think a lot of these things can be off-putting to someone who they have to do the accommodation just to get started. So I think that's a huge uh, point to make those on-ramps, uh, to talk back to the ramp thing, make those on-ramps easiest and most inclusive so that people don't feel othered right from the start. And then maybe they can build more connectivity over time. Yeah, amazing stuff to chew on here, uh, Cheryl. We always love to get our guests' perspective on what's happening in the world around us as well. So what else is out there in the world? Any other trends, any other things you're noticing that are capturing your imagination? And, and then we're also going to start uh, heading towards conclusion. So if there are any ways to bring this all back together, we'd love to hear them. But anything else out, out there in the world that's new and emerging that's capturing your, your eye these days? I, like I said, I have a very highly technical team that I love to work with. I'm the strongest educator in the bunch. And so I have to have them slow down once in a while and say, wait a minute, how are students going to use this or access this? And one of the new things that's very interesting is interactive video. 
where students can actually see some video going on and then they need they can engage by answering some questions or something. And that's a really exciting way to, to engage students of all types. The piece that we're, of course, working on is how to make those more accessible. Mm -hmm. And so that's our uh, piece of the puzzle. But we're really working diligently on that, as are some others, because we think it's a very cool technology. Yeah. Yeah. And what about uh, just while you're, you, you got me thinking about uh, virtual reality as well, which is another, more people are talking to me about that. Any perspective on those sorts of technologies that are emerging and how to think about them through the universal design lens? Yeah, some of them uh, can be fairly easily made accessible to students, at least with some types of disabilities. Others are more difficult, and some are actually designed for people with disabilities to experience things like virtual reality to help someone who has a mobility uh, disability to be able to experience water skiing or something that might be somewhat interested or someone who's blind to experience kind of sight. And so that's an interesting area as well. Another one is artificial intelligence. I would like to see more AI being applied to assistive technology. Mm -hmm. Like why can't we have assistive technology that figures out all this stuff about an inaccessible PDF? Mm -hmm. You and I can see it and test to see that it's not accessible. But if, you know, we know how powerful AI is. I think of some of these smart people that are working in the AI field, if they took on that as a, a project, Project, uh, to make assistive technology smarter than it is, I think uh, we could do a lot. Yeah, very cool. Got my wheels turning, Cheryl. So thank you. Thank you for that. Any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up? Thanks again. To, and maybe uh, remind folks the book or anything, anywhere else they need to go if they want to track what you're working on. Yeah, Creative Inclusive Learning Opportunities in Higher Education. Uh, Universal Design Toolkit is the name of it. And uh, my dad was a used car dealer. So I know you always have to have a special deal, right? At the end of the day, uh, you can get a 20% discount on this book as we speak for a short time now. The code is I-N-L-E-H-E -E if you buy it from Harvard Education Press. Awesome. Uh, and if, if you go to the Center for Universal Design and Education, which is part of our project that we manage, if you go to that Center for Universal Design and Education, you'll see it there, all the information about it. Awesome. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. If you didn't know about Cheryl, now clearly she's uh, ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff and uh, hopefully bringing us all along for the ride. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, Subscribe, tell a friend, pay it forward, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.